Welcome to Beaks and Geeks. Today on the show is Melissa Dahl, the author of Cringeworthy. She's also known for her writing on NewYorkMag.com's Science of Us. Today, she's here to talk about everything awkward, embarrassing, and socially weird. Welcome to the show. Thank you. My favorite subjects. <laughs> um, so a lot of the research you do uh, in this book is totally dealing with your own super visceral, intense emotions <laughs> about feeling uncomfortable in social situations. Um, what pushed you to actually sit with the emotions and actually write the book and investigate those feelings? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I set out to write exactly the opposite book that I kind of ended up writing. Like I actually even looked at my contract the other day and it says like, it's supposed to be a book about like avoiding awkwardness or like overcoming awkwardness. Like I, I remember one of my initial conversations with my editor was he wanted to know, he was like trying to get me to think about, you know, why do some people go through the world, you know, like Cary Grant and the rest of us kind of just bumble our way around and, and, and how do we all get to be more like that Cary Grant person? And so, I mean, I have all these like drafts kind of floating around my Google Docs of chapters that are all about trying to like create like a barrier between me and this like feeling, you know, that was like the initial point of the book. And then, I don't know. I guess like I, I like kept trying to write that book and it just wasn't working. It just wasn't interesting. Um, and and then just like there's something about the feeling that was so funny to me and it just kind of drew me in and in and in and I was just curious to learn more about it. And I mean, there are some psychologists who theorize that every emotion has a purpose. So then it kind of started to think, well, what's the what's the purpose of this one? Um, so, so it became more about that kind of more about like appreciating this feeling that has driven me crazy my whole life. So, <laughs> um, well, you mentioned at some point early on that it's an alert system. Yeah. Yeah. And so the initial way I kind of had that, that was something that was like in my proposal that it's an alert system. So it tells you like, you're doing something wrong. Stop it. You know, avoid this, this, avoid this, go away. And it, and now it's more like, I, th I think of it a little bit differently. It's 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 an alert system that something has gone weird, but that's not necessarily negative. Like you don't have to frame that as being negative. It it can be, maybe it is, but not always. And it's um it's really been kind of cool to separate like that kind of judgment from the feeling. So once you sort of do a lot of research and find out a lot more about what makes you feel this certain way or other people feel feel uncomfortable, um, you really lean into it. So you you kind of find that exposure therapy works for a lot of people. Yeah. And you chase that. Yeah, yeah. This was this is so this is so funny to me. Um this is uh, I came across this uh, actually did this as a piece for Science of Us a couple of years ago. Um, there's this guy, um, Stefan Hoffman, um, at uh, Boston University at this uh, kind of pretty well known anxiety uh, treatment center there and he uh he works with social anxiety patients and he actually got this idea from watching one of those like prank shows you know like where they have people go out and do just something really weird that will get everybody looking at them like you know what if we I don't know I feel like I, I did this kind of weird little experiments in psych 101 classes in college like you go in the elevator and you like stand the wrong way yeah. you know <laughs> um and he just started thinking like what if I could get what if I could get my social anxiety patients to do that? So he designed this kind of, um, he calls it social mishap exposures. And it's it's exposure therapy for kind of 
extreme awkwardness. Like social people with social anxiety, it's like they feel this feeling to the extreme so much so that it holds them back from doing things that they really want to do. It interferes with their lives. Um, and so he works with people to kind of think of the most embarrassing thing they can think of doing. And then he's like, okay, go do it. And it'll, it'll be things like, you know, going to a bookstore and, and saying to a clerk, excuse me, I was looking for books about farting or <laughs> nightmare situation. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Or like, um, going and standing on a street corner and singing, Mary had a little lamb at the top of your lungs and singing like all three verses. And like, when people walk by, like you just keep singing. <laughs> and, and the point isn't to terrify them. The point is to kind of make them think of the worst thing possible they could do, the stupidest they could possibly feel, and just make them realize, oh, I survived. Like, oh, that wasn't that bad. And a lot of the stuff I ended up doing for the book sort of felt like that awkwardness exposure therapy. Like taking an improv class seemed like the worst thing I can imagine doing. <laughs> and I did it, and it was actually it's actually really fun um or getting up on stage and reading my you know seventh grade diary to a group of strange hundreds of strangers um ended up being really cool it was yeah it, it was certainly uncomfortable all of these things that I did for the book but you know you 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 survive and and you kind of it's kind of cool in the end I had always thought about feeling awkward or feeling embarrassed about just social anxiety or just, oh, like having done something embarrassing. But you describe it as like a self-perception slip. So the way you think of yourself and the way you hope other people think of you is not being portrayed. Yeah. Yeah. So this is something um, there, there are some researchers are, who understand embarrassment in, in this way. Um, but I kind of start... I started thinking about this when I did um, another piece for Science of Us. I kind of, I kind of do a lot of my, my thinking, I guess, when I write for Science of Us because I write. I used to write so much. I wrote like three or four pieces a day, and I would just, wow. you, you could just tell whatever I was interested in that day just by what I wrote that day. Um, and so a couple of years ago, I was thinking about this book. I wasn't really hugely in the process of writing it, but I was thinking about it, and I did a piece on. Um, why we cringe at the sound of our own voices and that's like such a that's such a thing you hear people say it's such a cliche at this point you know like oh I just I can't like like I've been doing radio interviews and and some of them have told me like oh I, I never listen back to my own shows which is so funny like that's what you do for a living and you can't yeah. you, you can't listen back to that um so so I, I was writing a piece kind of like okay well, well why is that and there's there's an interesting physiological explanation behind it um basically when I hear myself talk, I hear it through the air and I hear it through the bones of my own skull. And your bones transmit sound at a lower frequency, I guess, than um, like a lower pitch than the air does. So I guess that's why this is like super common, especially for a lot of times when I hear my voice, I'm just like, oh my gosh, I didn't think I, my voice was that high. I sound like a teenager, you know. Um, so I got there, you know, in, in when I was writing the story. And so that explains why it's different, but why does that make us cringe? And so that's kind of when I started to think about this, that maybe there's something to the person you think you're presenting to the world and then the person the world is actually seeing. And when there's kind of a gap between those two things, I, I think I think in most situations where we say, you know, that's awkward or that's embarrassing or, or that makes us cringe, I think there's that gap there between your 
perception of yourself and others' perception of you. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's this uh, psychologist, Philippe Rochat, whose work I became obsessed with. Um, he is at Emory University, and he has a name for this. He calls this the irreconcilable gap, um, that, that, that gap between how you see yourself and how others see you. Um, and the worst possible example of that to me is when you describe somebody who's like being kind of bombastic and um, full of himself and thinking he's impressing everybody and nobody's impressed. Like that is the yeah. worst possible. Oh one my gosh! To me. I know. I know. It's, it's so funny. I think cringing is like is is very idiosyncratic because someone else in an interview said that to me the other day, being like, "Why would that be embarrassing? Why would that give you secondhand embarrassing?" I'm like, "That's the worst." Because you're like, because because I think. I don't know, maybe maybe because I'm putting myself in their shoes or something. But but um, anyway, yeah, this can explain kind of secondhand embarrassment, too. When you see the the person that they're trying to present to the world, you know, like uh, there was this weekend there was like, you know, I guess Fergie really botched the, the national anthem. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can see the you can see the person they're trying to present. And then you can see like, oh, my God, I can see what you're trying to do. And. And you didn't quite get yeah. there, you know. Yeah, the, these uh, these researchers in Germany who kind of became pals of mine, um, they're like, as far as I can tell, the only people in the world who are as obsessed with, you know, what makes people cringe as I am. <laughs> um, and and that's what set them on this whole research path they've been following for like almost a decade now. Uh, they were listening to somebody give a speech and he was just just bragging and he was just being so like self-promoting in a way that they were just like squirming in their seats just like oh you like you can't see what we can see this is just not oh this is not coming off right yeah (laughs) and that brings me to um how feeling secondhand embarrassment and to have a great deal of empathy sort of isn't actually a wonderful virtue necessarily like I've definitely (laughs) felt smug I'm like oh if I feel bad for somebody else it means I'm an amazing person. I know <laughs> but, I know I know yeah I, I so I, I've written about so many studies over my uh, I've, I've been writing about psychology for almost well, more than 10 years now and um this is this is one I've, I've come back to a couple times um I've written about it in, in several different ways um and this was by those German researchers it was out in 2011 um and they found that people who experience a lot of vicarious embarrassment they tend to be also really high in empathy and 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 yeah like you were saying the first time I read that I was just so smug I'm just like (laughs) such a good person that's why I have to leave the room you know and like I don't know during certain moments in the office or something I've barely ever been able to make it through an episode of the British office it's just like too too much um but you know, we we tend to think of empathy as if it's a synonym for compassion or, or kindness, and and you know these these researchers were telling me like it, it can be a route to those things, but but not necessarily. It doesn't because you know something like if you're cringing on behalf of somebody like we were talking about who is you know bragging about themselves, you're it's like you're putting yourself in somebody else's shoes, but it's still you in there. You know, you you're still bringing your own your own thoughts and your own experiences. Anyway, it's it's uh, it, it's interesting that distinction between um, empathy as kind of an automatic process that just like healthy brains just do. We're just social creatures. It's just part of getting along with each other is imagining what other people are are, are thinking. Um, and uh, yeah, there, there's a distinction between that and, and compassion. Yeah. So the really nice thing about this book is that while it is some really interesting research, there's also actual takeaways, like tools a person could use to feel less awkward or to get past their awkwardness or to embrace it. Um, so can you can you give some examples of those? Yeah, yeah. So 
Um, you know, I, I talked earlier about that um, secondhand embarrassment study, which is something I've returned to again and again. Another study I have returned to again and again, I think I've written about it like four separate times, um, is this idea. Um, it's called anxiety reappraisal. And it's this idea that you can kind of reframe nervousness, which is a big part of, of, of feeling awkward, you know. Um, you can reframe that as as excitement. Um, and, and the idea is that to your body, they both kind of feel the same. Like if you're nervous about something, you know, if you kind of think about the physical feelings, it's like, you know, maybe you, you get kind of sweaty and like your heart starts pumping, you know, and, and if you interpret that as nervousness, then it's, you know, maybe if you interpret that as nervousness, it means, oh, let me get out of the situation. I got to get out of here. But if you interpret it as excitement, you can kind of think like, okay, that's just, this is just my body, like getting pumped up, knowing I've got to, I've got to do something important. Um, and there's, there's some research on this. Um, uh, there's this woman at Harvard, Alison Wood Brooks, who had some people um, kind of try to tamp down their nervousness and say, like, oh, just, you know, calm down, calm down. And they had, and then she had other people um, just try to roll with it, just say like, okay, I'm feeling this way because my body knows I'm about to do something big and important and that's why I have all these jitters and it's for me to use them so I can be better at this thing I'm about to do. Um, and those people ended up performing better at whatever weird little task she made them do in a lab. I think it was like public speaking or, or something. Or, or oh, I think maybe it was singing karaoke was another one. Um, oh my God. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah, but I, I, but I love that. Um, I became so interested in thinking about awkwardness as an emotion because there's some there's some research that suggests that if you the way you conceptualize an emotion kind of dictates how you feel it and so if you can change the way you think of an emotion if you can change the way you define an emotion you can change the way you feel it so if you can start to think about you know, I don't know if you get invited to like your company holiday party or whatever and you're like or, or a job interview and you're kind of like feeling awkward and feeling self-conscious if you can start to think of that feeling as you know, maybe that's just presenting like an opportunity or maybe that's like presenting there's something kind of exciting that is potentially about to happen. Um, that really helps. Another thing that makes people feel really uncomfortable are difficult conversations with people they disagree with. But you had a really interesting study in there that talks about the value of active processing. Can you explain what that is? Yeah, totally. Um, so it was interesting as I was, you know, I kind of have been studying awkwardness for you know two or three years now and it was so interesting to me to track how we were using the word and, and most of the time we use the word kind of in the way we've been talking about you know it's those little moments where you feel uncomfortable at a job interview or at a party or whatever but I also noticed there were there are people who are using this word to talk about like really deeply uncomfortable things like talking with people about politics or race or like gender or you know sexual harassment um and there are a lot of people advocating to have more so-called awkward conversations. And so I was just curious, like, there are all these groups out there who are, who are just, you know, saying, like, this is, this is the key. We've got to do more of this. And so I was kind of curious, like, okay, well, will, will that really work? And the, the best research out there kind of goes back to these two, um, these two things in psychology that are like well-established ideas. And one of them is perspective taking, which is sort of another way to say empathy, like we were talking about, just kind of trying to see things from somebody else's point of view. And that's not surprising, really. Um, but the other one is this thing called active processing, 
which is kind of like getting to like a cooler, calmer, you know, state of mind rather than rather than kind of like rushing in and having like a heated argument or or just as one of the researchers put it, you know, trying to beat someone over the head with your fact stick, you know, <laughs> and um, and and that to me is is a kind of a cool way to think about so-called awkward conversations. They don't they can be kind of like quietly uncomfortable. They don't have to be excruciating and heated and 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 painful in that way. Um, and there's not a ton of research on this, but there is this woman, Elena Connor at Stanford, who kind of is putting together a um, like a toolkit for people who want to have more conversations that are uncomfortable like this. And to get into that active processing mode, she kind of advises people to try to think more like an anthropologist, like just really try to understand where this other person is coming from rather than try to persuade somebody and, and rather, rather trying to really change somebody's mind, just really try to understand where they're coming from and make them state where they're coming from. You know, sometimes sometimes a lot of us haven't even really said what we think out loud about some subject that is contentious or not. Um, and the other thing she was kind of a, a couple ways to get there um, are by asking why questions, you know, kind of falling back on, you know, why, why this? Why do you think that? Um, and to me, that also is handy for someone who gets easily tongue-tied in, in uncomfortable situations if you just kind of can fall back on like, well, why? Why do you say this? And why, you know, what, what makes you think that? Um, and then using I statements, which is kind of a classic from like, you know, therapy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I found that really helpful. Another kind of comforting <laughs> aspect of the book is the idea that most people don't notice as much as you think they notice yeah. how uncomfortable you are, or how awkward you feel. Um, and Along with that, can you explore what the idea that you put forward of self-indifference? Yeah, totally. Um, I I love that idea. No one's been asking me about that from the book. <laughs> um, okay, so um, a lot of a lot of times when I feel self-conscious, I you know I walk into a meeting late or I say something stupid in that meeting after I've walked into it late, and I assume everybody's looking at me, and I assume everybody is remembering the stupid thing I said, and. I mean, I, I made a comment earlier when I walked in here about how wrinkled my shirt was, and you were like, "Oh, I didn't notice," you yeah. know. <laughs> so, you know, the the things that, like the things that drive us nuts about ourselves, a lot of people just just haven't even noticed. Um, and there's this thing in in the psychological psychological literature that is very soothing for the extremely self conscious um, called the spotlight effect, which is this idea that not as many people as we think are picking up on our flaws or are embarrassing things we do or say not to say that nobody is but not as many people as we think and not as many people care as we think um they're actually uh, i have a story early in the book about um going uh running with my friend marie early in the morning and i'm just like not a morning person and i somehow as we're running i like ran into a lamppost i have no idea how that happened but it happened and it was very painful and i remember it clearly because i wrote about it and and um and she's read the book now, and, and she said to me the other day, she's like, yeah, I mean, I kind of remember that, but, like, you know, I'd, like... <laughs> didn't stick. Yeah, it didn't stick. Yeah. Like, even something ridiculous like that, <laughs> she just was like, yeah, I didn't really, yeah, I didn't, didn't really think about it afterwards. Um, so that is something so comforting for those of us who just, you know, beat ourselves up for, like, little, you know, dumb dumb things we say or do. Um, and then, 
kind of adding on to that, something that has become so helpful to me is this idea um, that I kind of got obsessed with of, of self-indifference, which to me is um, it's it's not self-esteem, but it's also not putting yourself down. It's not self-hate. It's not self-love. It's just kind of, I don't know, just realizing that you're not that big of a deal in, in the grand scheme of things. It's kind of it, I mean, it's sort of another word for humility, I suppose, um, is what I kind of talk about in the book. Um, but it's just like zooming out and realizing that the dumb things you've said, someone has, people have done dumber things. People have done less dumb things. You know, people have worn more wrinkled shirts than I'm wearing today. People <laughs> have worn less wrinkled shirts. It's just, you're, you're just not that big of a deal and isn't that great. <laughs> it is. It's super freeing. It's super freeing. Yeah, it really is. <laughs> Um, well, before I let you go, I always like to talk to everybody about what they're reading. And I'm guessing you like you read a lot of serious research and stuff. But are there any kind of accessible science books that you would recommend? Yeah, I'm reading one right now, actually, that is out um, in a month. Um, it's called it's called How to Be Yourself. And it, it for people who like if you like my book, I think you would really like this book. It's by um, it's by this woman, Ellen Hendrickson, who is a clinical psychologist who um, studies and works with people who have social anxiety. And it's like, it's very, um, you know, my book kind of like, you know, goes in, like I, I go and do weird things and, you know, like interview people and stuff. And hers is more kind of very much research based and very much takeaway tips based. Um, but it's great. It's really, really helpful. And, and she does tell some embarrassing stories about herself or just, you know, stories about, um, she has a story in the book about having to, having to pick up like I don't know, something like 35 gallons of milk for her, her her kids' class at school. And she's walking around in the grocery store just, like, thinking everybody is looking at me for, you know, <laughs> for, like, my stupid, you know. I think it was 35, 35 gallons of milk and something like, I don't know, a million bananas or something. And she's just, like, people are looking at me and thinking I'm so weird. Um, so it's a lot of the themes I hit in my own book. And I'm really liking it. So, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, this was really fun. <laughs> well, congrats on the book. Thank you.